So, I was recently listening to a podcast. I know, that's ironic. It was an archived episode of the Sparkle Tack History of San Francisco podcast, to be precise. And the host pointed out something that I hadn't really thought about in a while, but that I do remember now that he's mentioned it. And that's something is that you don't see those kill your television stickers anymore like you used to. When I first moved to San Francisco, they were fairly prominent, and especially in the places that mattered, like all up and down the Valencia Street corridor, you know, they were just these bumper stickers that said, kill your television. And so what happened? Did people finally kill all their TVs? Did they hold an election that I somehow missed, where everybody voted to keep their TVs after all? Or did television just somehow fade away? and not matter as much anymore. If television went away, how did it go away? There was no joining together to get rid of televisions. There was no hands across America to liberate the country from its television codependency. Somehow, when we weren't paying attention, while we were busy with other things, television just faded away. So to get a better handle on this, let's back it up a little, say about 65, 70 years to 1948. With American men safely home from World War II, American households safely out of the Great Depression, and American families safely moved out of the cities and into the suburbs, we entered a new age that night in 1948 when four television networks began broadcasting a regular schedule of primetime fare. Over the next few years, tens of millions of American households would plug in their television sets for the first time. And we've been living in a different world ever since. Some people describe this world as the post-war era or the Pax Americana. But in the last episode of this podcast, we identified that era as something else. We identified it as the age of television, something that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we described it as a sociological or pop culture phenomenon, rather than something geopolitical as the terms post-war or Pax Americana would imply. Once we start framing our thoughts, our outlooks, in terms of an age of television, some interesting thought experiments become possible. For starters, let's imagine the baby boomers and the Gen Xers are no longer seen as two distinct generations, but rather that they are two different branches of the same generation, the generation for whom the age of television is named. You see, if you were a baby boomer or a Gen Xer, you were born into a world of ample leisure time, yet starved for entertainment. Television was the best game in town. If you grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s, you know what I'm talking about. The generation after Generation X? We were calling them Generation Y for a little while, but I guess their forever name is the Millennials. They grew up with television, but they also grew up with a lot of other things as well. Things that we didn't have, like the internet, DVDs, and well, mostly the internet. 
And you know, while we're here, while we're talking about them, just for fun, let's extend the analogy one more place beyond the decimal point and ask, what about the generation entering high school now? The kids who will turn 18 by 2020. The first generation born entirely within the 21st century. The ones who don't even remember a time before smartphones, let alone a time before the internet. Will television mean anything to them? Can it mean anything to them? That thing they watch together with mom and dad in the family room is not a television. It's a screen. Just like the screen on their smartphone, their tablet, and their laptop. That's now. That's the present day reality. But what about then? As we talked about last week, the baby boomers' parents didn't grow up with television. They grew up in the radio era. So television was a strange new form of radio to them. While it was more like a surrogate parent, an older sibling, and an imaginary best friend to their baby boomer children. And when the Gen Xers were kids, television was the only game in town for news, for entertainment, for current events, just like for the baby boomers. Television was the only game in town. The television set was what the living room furniture and, increasingly, the dining room furniture was arranged around. Oh, I know what you're about to say. What about the music, man? There was music. There was rock and roll. And rock and roll was what gave our generation their soul, their identity, their self-image, their confidence. Rock and roll was what ushered in the age of youth power and change the world forever. And rock and roll had nothing to do with television, right? Rock and roll was the opposite of television. Rock and roll meant kill your television, not watch your television. Or did it? Once you embrace the concept of the age of television as something that begins at the dawn of the 1950s, rises to prominence by the 1970s, and continues to be a dominant, ubiquitous feature of the cultural landscape, pretty much for the rest of the 20th century, thanks to the niche markets of cable, well, then you can ask yourself, what else made a raucous entry into the cultural landscape in the 50s, and went from outsider status to become the mainstream in the 1970s, and diversified into dozens of niche markets by the 1990s? Well, that doesn't just sound like television. That also kind of sounds like rock and roll, doesn't it? Now, is that a coincidence? Or is it something more? That is the main course on today's installment of The TV Room. So, warm up your tubes, adjust your rabbit ears, go ahead and give it a good whack on the side, and join us in The TV Room. This is the Dubon Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown acid is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like me. Hello, I'm James Garner. 
please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Rock stars. Are they even a thing anymore? When was the last new rock star you ever heard of? Some people would say it was Jack White. Some would even say it was Jack Black. But either way, the point remains the same. There is really no such thing as a rock star anymore. Today there are YouTube sensations. And there are American Idol winners. But these people are more like karaoke performers. Plus choreography. Beyond that, the up-and-comers who create a buzz and sell out arenas these days, they all seem to be DJs. I know, right? I don't even know how to spell it. D-E-E-J-A-Y? Or is it capital D, capital J? Now, I have no right to judge. All I know is the world I grew up in had certain rules and regulations. One of them was that rock and roll would always be king. This was such an ironclad rule that nobody even challenged it. We had a few guys stamping out Beatles records in the early 60s, but in the 70s, not even Anita Bryant went after rock and roll. The only time you ever pondered rock and roll's mortality was during the quiet part of the Who song, Long Live Rock, when Daltrey intones, Rock is Dead, three times slowly. Of course, that lyric was just meant as a cautionary tale. A warning to remind you of what could happen if you let them take your rock away. But it was really an affirmation. And the affirmation that trickled down to the teenagers in America was that even though you're just a minor, you could still contribute your own dollars, along with your heart and soul, and some other body parts, to help keep rock and roll alive by purchasing albums, merch, concert tickets, and new stereos. Well, the century progressed, and new generations of teenagers came of age, Trends rose and trends fell, but rock and roll was still the mothership to which they all returned. Sure, DJs were already there on the scene, but few took them seriously as legitimate rivals to actual rock stars. I mean, DJs, they worked the occasional dance club, but their natural purview was bar mitzvahs and wedding parties, not headlining arenas and stadiums. When the specter of rock star level DJs did finally surface in public media, there was no reason not to believe that soon enough the kids' enthusiasm for the fad would quickly max out, and they would drop it like a moldy potato, like they always did. That's what happened with hair rock and every other fanciful trend that took rock and roll too far away from its roots. The youth culture would quickly and aggressively self-correct this trend. It always did. Soon enough, these DJs would get bounced to the curb where the spandexed hair rockers were. But in the 2000s, a strange thing happened. That correction never came. 
Instead, the digital realm began to completely displace rock and roll's analog roots. Analog itself became obsolete. Tapes, records, even CDs were rendered superfluous. Musical instruments became unnecessary. In theory, with the swipe of a finger, one kid with one iPad could mash, tweak, and twerk every note ever recorded in the history of man to create masterpieces that Beethoven and the Beatles could only dream of. In theory. Because we all know that there is more to making music than generating a sequence of sound waves. And we all know that actual music ability isn't always at the top of the list of what makes an actual rock star. There are reasons that we love the Beatles and we love Hendrix while remaining indifferent to the multitude of dedicated note-for-note Beatles and Hendrix cover artists. So what are these reasons? To understand the rock and roll phenomenon a little better, we need to dig deep. We need to go back to year zero, back to where it all began. So, who was the first rock star anyway? Well, the easy answer is Elvis. The harder question is why? Was it Elvis's ability to channel race music to a white audience? Was it the opportunity he had to work with the hitmakers at Sun Records? Was it the pompadour and the pelvis? Well, most people would agree that it was some sort of combination of all three. But in doing so, they omit the most crucial ingredient of all. I'm talking, of course, about television. What I'm suggesting is that there is no Elvis without television. Not the Elvis we know. And that naturally leads to the bigger question, which is how much of rock and roll itself is the result of television? Is it just a coincidence that the era of rock stars more or less matches up with the era of television? A milestone was reached with the first ever televised presidential debate between Richard Nixon and John Kennedy. That took place in 1960. If you listened to the debate on the radio, Odds are you thought that Nixon beat Kennedy. But if you watched the debate on television, you probably thought that Kennedy was the big winner. Well, we all know how that election turned out. And that's our first indicator of just how strong the power of television can be. Was Kennedy a rock star? I don't know. He was more of a rock star than Nixon. Of course, Nixon was by no means through yet, and that is a story for another time. 
The real reason I even brought up the Nixon-Kennedy debate is because it occurred halfway between two other major television events. Namely, the first Elvis appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, and the first Beatles appearance on the same program. Of course, we're very aware of the Beatles' performance on Ed Sullivan, as well as Elvis Presley's. But we think of their careers as being something else entirely, besides these TV appearances. And rightly so. But the question is, would there have been an Elvis, as we know him, without television? Would the Beatles have had their Beatlemania without television? People like to credit the ascent of rock and roll to some sort of collective generational awakening, something spiritual, supernatural, as if the fingers of teenage America all magically walked themselves over to the sweet spot on the Ouija board at the same time. But what if the answer was something far more mundane? What if rock and roll initially became the coolest thing ever because it was on TV Sunday night at 8 o'clock? when the Ed Sullivan show aired, when the whole family was watching. So a little background information, a little sidebar. Movies were the first big innovation in entertainment in the 20th century. Movies enabled performers to be seen in multiple screens all across the nation. Thus the making of the movie star. Radio allowed performers to be heard live in people's living rooms simultaneously all across the country. But television marked the first time entertainers could be seen in your living room nationwide and simultaneously. Rock and roll as we know it begins with this visual being viewed by hundreds of millions of eyeballs in their living rooms at the same time. It's ironic that an auditory experience like music would depend on a visual medium like television to gain traction, but maybe that tells us something about the essence of rock and roll, or the lack thereof. Elvis already had four gold records by the time he got on Sullivan. People knew what he sounded like, and they liked it, or they hated it. What was different about a live appearance was the chance to get a look at Elvis himself. And just as importantly, if not more so, to get a look at the audience. You ain't nothing but a- Do you hear all those screaming teenagers? Eight years later, when the Beatles debuted on Ed Sullivan, there was a whole new batch of screaming teens. And they were just as loud, probably louder. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! In a way... That was the sound that reverberated the most strongly with us. 
not the performances of Elvis or the Beatles, but the performances of the teenagers in the audience. Take a good listen to that sound. It was like nothing ever heard before in the annals of Western civilization. Teenage girls were succumbing to their hormones while the adults in the room pretended not to notice. In hindsight, it seems obvious that the adults in the room must have sensed an imminent loss of control over this most marketed to, largest generation in American history. These baby boomers who were just starting to turn 18. Throughout the pre-Woodstock era, the shifting norms of American society played out in the triangulation between Ed Sullivan, his audience, and the performers on the show. It was a Sunday night ritual. Sullivan, basically the stiffest possible authority figure this side of Nixon, introduces the act, and then he stands back while the kids go crazy. Sullivan then returns to the stage after the performance to comment on the audience's behavior and to banter with the talent. Sullivan rarely gets what the hubbub is all about himself, but he's powerless to stop it. And, especially with the Beatles, you can hear him give his, not just tacit approval, but his overt approval telling the parents of America that these are good boys. They're welcome back on his show anytime. Because these youngsters from Liverpool, England, and their conduct over here, not only as fine professional singers, but as a group of fine youngsters, will leave an imprint with everyone over here who's met them. And that goes for all of us on our show. And if they're good enough for Sullivan, they're good enough for you. You could see the actual generation gap itself acted out in these little vignettes. Little did they know at the time just how thoroughly these nascent baby boomers would overturn the status quo in America. Or how soon. 1964, the year the Beatles debuted on Sullivan, was a presidential election year. By the next election cycle, 1968, these teenagers would take over campuses, political conventions, and make serious grabs at the levers of power. Society itself would cross over the cultural Rubicon that year, with rock and roll music as its unlikely masthead. To be sure, America's youth had been using jazz music as liberation theology for a full generation before rock and roll appeared on the scene. Well, and what do we mean by liberation theology? There were no lyrics in jazz telling you to go out and overthrow the system. 
If you wanted that, you listen to folk music. You listen to Woody Guthrie. Jazz of the big band era blurred the line between races and gender roles. It was a distinctly urban phenomenon in a nation of puritanical morals. There's a general sense that if you're listening to jazz music, civil rights can't be too far behind. Jazz music was temptation. Perhaps an irresistible temptation to the youth of America. And in that sense, broadly speaking, big band music was the rock and roll of the radio era. Just don't ever say that to a hepcat. 1940s hipsters hated the new generational preference for rock and roll almost as much as the parents did, if not more so. They hated it with a passion. Their jazz was complex, sophisticated, groovable. Well, rock and roll was just so crude and obvious. And therein lies the difference between the youth music of the radio era and the youth music of the TV era. In television, the visual supplants the audible. The looks and moves of the frontman replace the band leader's role of conductor. The punch of the drums and guitar are turned up in the mix, while the harmony of the brass and woodwinds are eliminated entirely. Four guys do what two dozen used to. Namely, to make America's youth want to get up and dance and stomp. And do whatever comes after dancing and stomping once you've bitten the apple. The rock and roll pioneers who grew up in the pre-Elvis era, you know, guys like Dylan, born in, say, 1941-42, they talk about picking up obscure radio stations broadcasting out of the Mississippi Delta states and of being unable to ascertain whether a given artist was white or black. That miscegenation was indeed, as some people saw it, the original sin that spawned rock and roll. But television eliminated the racial guesswork and a narrower flavor of rock and roll ensued. TV pretty much created the rock star right about then, right about the time Elvis went on Sullivan. Rock and roll would have carried on had there been no television, but it would have remained underground, taking place in dark, crowded clubs that violated everything from local noise ordinances to segregation laws to the unwritten laws of common decency. But Elvis appeared on Sullivan one Sunday night, the rock star was born, and the rest is history. Elvis was an entertainer when he went on The Ed Sullivan Show. And the Beatles were entertainers, too. The persona of the singer-songwriter had not yet permeated the rock and roll pantheon. But things took a serendipitous turn in that direction when the Fab Four retired from the road and became dedicated studio artists. ¶¶ 
By the end of the 1950s, Rock's original pioneers were either dead, Buddy Holly, jailed, Chuck Berry, drafted, Elvis Presley, disgraced, Jerry Lee Lewis, or in Bible college, Little Richard. Yeah, the hits kept coming, but the producers were the ones setting the trends, not the musicians. Novelty songs and instrumentals often dominated the charts during the early years of the 60s. The intellectually curious people of that period gravitated towards the folk movement. If rock and roll was high school, then folk music was definitely college. And folk soon produced a star of its own during that time, the baby-faced Bob Dylan. Whether very directly or only somewhat directly, Dylan's songwriting had a huge influence on the Beatles. And so did their initiation to marijuana, supposedly also at the hand of Bob Dylan. Folk music and grass. In essence, the four working-class lads from Liverpool, Ed Sullivan's good boys, were seduced by the college coffeehouse scene of the 60s. Lennon and McCartney were like Pinto from Animal House in Professor Jennings's bathroom. Could I buy some pot from you? The trend was set. Well, now let's skip ahead to 1967. It's only a couple of years later, as the crow flies, but it's a world of difference between the black and white world of 1964. 1967 is known as the Summer of Love, but it should really be called the Year of the Album. By then, most of the baby boomers who screamed Beatlemania into existence four school years earlier were becoming college-aged or draftable. A good day in the life of the summer of love consisted of drawing the shades, smoking banana peels if you had them, and listening to album sides as the album's cover is passed around and gaped at like a sacred object to be inspected for hidden truths. And in 1967, records began being tailored for this very thing. Liner notes and jackets became part of the album package, rather than just the packaging the album came in. Albums folded out like centerfolds. Lyrics were printed on the inside to be read, because they were that important. Consider some of the records that came out just in that year. Strange Days... Surrealistic Pillow, Velvet Underground and Nico, Are You Experienced, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Disraeli Gears, Days of Future Past, Forever Changes, Axis Bold as Love, Procol Harem, The West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band, and uh, am I forgetting anything? Oh yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, The Beatles! 
Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band dropped on June 1st, 1967. Sgt. Pepper's was a lot of things, but it was not the Beatles' best album. It probably wasn't even in their top three. But it did represent the Beatles' full embrace of the new counterculture that was happening all around them. In fact, this album put them at the forefront of that counterculture. The Beatles had already been writing Stoned for the past couple of albums, 1965's Rubber Soul and 1966's Revolver. On a song-by-song basis, those albums are probably better than Sgt. Pepper's. During the Sgt. Pepper's mania that took place in June of 1987, when it had been literally 20 years ago today since the iconic Beatles album first dropped, George Harrison was asked if he thought Sgt. Pepper's was, in fact, the best rock album of all time. He answered that it wasn't even the Beatles' best album. That honor, according to George, would probably have to go to Revolver or Rubber Soul, and many would agree. But Sgt. Pepper's was much more than just the sum of its parts. Sgt. Pepper was a cultural icon, which is to say it was a countercultural icon. And by icon, we mean something tangible and maybe talismanic. The album itself was something to be held and admired and passed from hand to hand, like jug wine around a trash can fire. Revolver and Rubber Soul, the two previous Beatle albums, had pretty cool covers, but they were more of the old-fashioned cool. The Beatnik brand of cool. Darkly colored, slightly affected, paperback renderings that suggested hippie hair and hallucinogenics, but didn't ever actually confirm it. On the Revolver and Rubber Soul covers, the Beatles still looked enough like Ed Sullivan's fine, upstanding young men to pass for straight. All they were ever actually shown doing in the photos was smoking cigarettes. Harmless tobacco. But so many songs on Revolver and Rubber Soul were about being stoned or getting dosed. The way the songs on their previous albums used to be about meeting girls. There were even sitars and guitar feedback and backwards tracks and subversive experimentation with studio effects. But it was all so subtle compared to the Technicolor pageantry of Sgt. Pepper's. Sgt. Pepper's was the first big-budget album of the rock era really more of a project than an album. The Beatles had retired from touring in mid-1966 and began going into the studio that fall to record their next record. Until that point, the Beatles usually put out a solid two and a half albums per year between world tours and feature films. Now, officially retired from the road, they were at the height of their fame and had the clout, the resources, and the leisure time to dictate the terms and conditions for the next album slash project. You've probably heard the same story that I have. 
The Beatles played their final gig at Candlestick Park in San Francisco on August 29, 1966, and Paul McCartney stuck around town for a while, or came back at some point later, to check out the scene. In San Francisco, the Summer of Love 60s had already been going on for at least a year by then. So McCartney would have experienced the full brunt of San Francisco culture. The bands, the fashions, the politics, the acid. And somewhere along the line, he heard an acetate of Brian Wilson's Smile Sessions. And when he did hear that masterpiece, that record label executives couldn't appreciate, but other talented, ambitious rock stars could, a light clicked on. And McCartney got a vision of what was possible in the realm of a recording session and of the kind of approach the Beatles could take for their next album. Now, by 1966, for the people who were able to read the tea leaves, no pun intended, the Revolver and Rubber Soul albums indicated that the Beatles were probably, at the very least, dabbling in marijuana. But those two albums were hallmarks of the let's lock the doors, stuff towels under the cracks, and light up in the bathroom era of recreational marijuana use. Can I buy some pot from you? The Beatles by then were already turned on, but how tuned in were they on Rubber Soul and Revolver? Well, on Sgt. Pepper's, there was no doubt that they were now very tuned in. It was getting harder and harder to deny that the fine young men from the Ed Sullivan Show were now very probably on acid, and that they were indeed tuned in to the narrative of the 60s counterculture. Earlier, I might have said that Sgt. Pepper's wasn't just an album, it was a project. Well, it wasn't just a project, it was an event. Everything from the cover photo shoot to the 40-piece orchestra used on A Day in the Life was an event. It was the first rock album to win Grammy for Album of the Year, which doesn't count for much in itself, but does signify mainstream acceptance. Mainstream acceptance of what, though? Of the Ed Sullivan Beatles from three years back? Or of the fabulous Freak Brothers they had turned into? On the next installment of The TV Room, we'll continue our inquiry into that three-year window between 1964 and 1967, when the 60s went from looking like Wally Cleaver to looking like Eldridge Cleaver. And we'll consider how rock stars went from being teen idols on Ed Sullivan to being the leading luminaries in a whole new age of personal enlightenment. Thanks for tuning in, turning on, and dropping by. The TV Room is where we channel the 60s, the 70s, and beyond. Just a quick programming note. In the next episode, we'll actually skip ahead in the timeline and talk about 1968. And then we'll go back and look at the cultural revolution of 1967, sometimes called the Summer of Love. And we'll look at some of the milestones that got us there. 
If you like the show, be sure to check out the website where we publish long-form articles about all these themes and more. You can find it at sorif.tv. That's S as in science, O-R-E-F as in fiction, TV. You might also consider subscribing to the podcast and rating it on iTunes. We come out with a new episode every other week, and subscribing is the easiest way to make sure that episode gets to you as soon as possible. Rating the show helps to get it out there to the other people who want to hear it, but don't even know it's there yet. You can also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, with the search term Sorif TV. S is in serious, O-R-E, F is in funny, TV. See you in 68. Could I buy some pot from you?